0: small kids and the elderly we completely forget about them in our planning because they don't have any money you know they don't have a lot of money to spend so we, yeah. we really focus on the people with money and that is you know everybody from the age of 20 until retirement age it's kind of like this is a, an unofficial focus group for designing cities and a lot of it is you know car centric as well so I called it the life-size city because I think that every damn city in the world, you should feel like that city fits you, like that you are at scale with that city. And that is a goal for me in my work is trying to create cities like that.
1: Hi, this is Matt Sleppen and welcome to Leading Voices in Real Estate. Today's episode, an interview that I had with Michael Colville Anderson in person a few weeks ago in Copenhagen, is the discussion that I've been wanting to have since starting Leading Voices five years ago a conversation about the impact of bicycle infrastructure on our urban environments, and how that affects the quality of life and how it affects climate change. It took me those five years to find someone to talk broadly about bicycle infrastructure, and there's no better person than Michael, nor a better place than Copenhagen, known alongside Amsterdam as one of the two most bicycle-friendly cities on the planet. And as you'll hear in the conversation, a city where 60% of commuting Yes, I said 60% of commuting is done by bicycle. Michael is the founder of Copenhagenize, a global consultancy that helps cities understand best practices in implementation of bike infrastructure for their communities. He's moved on and is now runs his own public TV show on the Canadian broadcast system, which you can find on YouTube called The Life Size City and also a podcast of that same name. He's a frequent public speaker and TED talker on this topic and we recorded this conversation live and in person in his living room in the Fredericksburg neighborhood of Copenhagen on July 24th. Listeners know that I'm one of those guys who puts on spandex, and I do 30, 40, 50-mile bike rides on the weekends. And while many of you do that early morning run on business trips, I'm the one who goes over to the corner bike share, and I rent a 50-pound bike for an hour, and I explore the streets on a bike. I've done it in Houston, Nashville, New York, Washington, D.C., Boston, San Francisco, Paris, Copenhagen, and other cities, and each time I do it, I find myself smiling and seeing a ton of the city which you just can't do by foot. One of my favorite experiences was about three years ago, finishing up a backroads tour in Denmark with my daughter, Callie. We were riding the last five miles to our hotel in Copenhagen, merging into the slipstream of bike commuters in the... Oh my God, it feels safe and protected with bike lanes. Seeing people in suits coming home on their bikes, moms and dads bringing their kids to and from school, bikes with baskets full of groceries, people young, old, out of shape and in shape, all just pedaling on their clunkers to get where they need to go. Trying out the bike lanes in these cities really helps you feel the culture. And for me, and I'm sometimes a grouchy and too serious a guy, I sit there riding and smiling the whole time. This is part two of this year's August Leading Voices conversations about the built environment and climate change. Two weeks ago, we had Sarah Neff from Lenlease on the show, and now this conversation with Michael. Sarah spoke quite directly about climate change, and Michael speaks tangentially since he's not really an environmentalist. He's an urbanist and a deep believer that creating bicycle infrastructure, getting people out of their cars, and having cars no longer being the driver of our urban infrastructure will improve our cities, health outcomes, smiles on faces, and yes, the carbon footprint of our cities. The resonant thought for me is how do we as a real estate industry help promote change? And we know it will indeed be about change, be it on carbon footprint directly, as Sarah discussed, or parallel change to infrastructure and behavior, as Michael suggests. In some fashion with a myriad of challenge we're facing, we in the real estate are all in the change business. And of course, people are a big part of the change business. We know that in our search work. I think in almost every search I've done, we're seeking candidates for leadership positions who bring new school approaches to the business, always looking to improve and evolve companies towards best practices as the industry keeps getting more sophisticated, institutionally driven, and indeed involved with ESG. That's our job at Terra ZRG. And as always, thank you to my company, ZRG, for sponsoring the podcast. I hope that you enjoyed today's episode and I know I keep saying it, but please share this one with a friend. This episode is less insider baseball about real estate than an urbanist discussion and a deep dive exploration to figure out how to bring some of that European magic to our cities as well. So please share this episode. Please, if you have a few minutes, rate us in iTunes or your favorite podcast app, please subscribe to the show. And if you have comments or questions about the podcast or your company's evolutions and needs on the people side, please email me at mslepen at grgpartners.com. I hope that you enjoy the conversation with Michael and remember to get on that bike. And by the way, you can check out my rides in Copenhagen and in Scandinavia on this trip in my Strava feed, to which I'll provide a link in the show notes. So
0: what do you do for a living? So mostly keynotes. I, that's, I'm a you know high-profile keynote speaker at conferences about urbanism um, and bike-friendly cities, but also life-size city, you know, everything to do with urbanism. A TV series, that's basically what I do. I also have a Danish TV series, which isn't translated, uh, you know, it hasn't traveled, but it's a a Danish urbanism TV series. So I mostly do television. I only consult if it's really an amazing project where I just got this vibe. you got 400,000 people riding a bike, you know, every day in Copenhagen, more than in all of the United States put together for transport, right? Right. Just in this city, um, let alone Amsterdam or whatever. But, um, you know, none of them identify as a cyclist, right? There are cyclists in the statistics, you know. Oh, the number of cyclists increased on this street, the city will say, but like these people are not cyclists in the sense that right. if I'm in a bar in the States and I meet a girl and I tell her I'm a cyclist, you know, she's going to get like scary images of me in spandex and then probably walk away, right? <laughs> but here we're not cyclists, we're just people riding bikes. Right, know?
1: Yeah, and that's important distinction, especially because I'm here as both a person who rides a bike, mm-hmm. but I'm a cyclist. Mm-hmm. And okay. I just yeah. did a week in Norway and Sweden on yeah. back roads. Yeah in spandex and I loved it and had a great time and it was exercise and you have to be fit and all that stuff. But in bicycle for transport, because we just walked here, so we just walked two miles to get here Mm -hmm. and we saw more bicycles passing us by and it's just normal people having normal
0: life getting from place A to B. I'm just a bicycle user. Yeah. The French actually have the distinction in their language. They have a cyclist, cycliste, Uh which is spandex and Tour de France kind of stuff. And then they literally invented a phrase, bicycle user to distinguish the two. And we can use it also in Danish. I've heard it in some other countries, but uh, other languages as well. But yeah, there's, it's literally, we have that distinction, which for me is incredibly important. In my book that I wrote, I, you know, yeah. I, I use it as much as possible. Bicycle users, right? No.
1: You, and you do a good job. I, I did not bring the, the book for you to sign it because it was too heavy to All carry right. for two and a half miles, but it's, <laughs> it's there and our readers will recommend to it. So let's not talk about cycling for a few minutes and let's talk about
0: what the life-size city means and what urbanism means to you. The phrase, the life-size city, was something that I coined, um, oh, I don't know, eight years ago or so. Um, My daughter, Lulu, who was just here, you just met. Yeah. From the age of three and a half, this brilliant mind just started blurting out nuggets of wisdom about urbanism, you know, in her broken three and a half year old (laughs) Danish, right? But she just observes stuff. Still to this day, even though she's a big dorky teenager, she's still sharp with her observations. So, she was just saying stuff, and I went, "Oh my god, I have to start writing this down." And then one day, just outside here, we're waiting to cross the street. She's four and a half. We're holding hands. She was kind of quiet for a while, and then she just suddenly turns and looks at me and says, "Daddy, when is my city gonna fit me?" quote unquote. And I went, "Oh my god, this is one of those ones. This is awesome." And I'm going, "Girl, you're gonna grow. You know, you know, eat your vegetables." Haha. And she kind of gave me this look, you know, like a rhetorical <laughs> question look, right? right? Oh, Jesus, relax, grown up. It's just a rhetorical question. So. That was an amazing observation, but what happened was that I literally, for the next three or four weeks, was obsessed by this idea. Mm-hmm. You know, She doesn't feel like the city fits her, right? She's little, the garbage cans are her height, mm-hmm. buildings are out of scale, big cars are going past, you know, the you know intersections are even, here in Copenhagen, some of them are big, right? That's so right. I, I got her point. But then I'm thinking, does my city fit me? (laughs) Mm -hmm. I'm obsessed by this thought. And some places in Copenhagen, I'm going, oh, yeah. Like, there was a poster of me on the wall when they were planning this street. You know, that's how it feels. It was, you know, made for me alone and you if you cycle down it or walk down it. So other streets here, nah, not so much. Most other cities in the world, not so much at all. So that became this amazing idea from her brain. And I said, I got to call it something to honor it, right? It's Mm -hmm. got This has to have a name. So I went, you know, she doesn't feel life-sized and she has a life she is a life in this city the elderly in our cities same thing right the small kids and the elderly we completely forget about them in our planning because they don't have any money you know they don't have a lot of money to spend so we, right. we really focus on the people with money and that is you know everybody from the age of 20 until retirement age it's mm-hmm. kind of like this is a, an unofficial focus group for designing cities and a lot of it is you know car centric as well so I called it the life-size city because I think that every damn city in the world, you should feel like that city fits you, like that you are at scale with that city. And that is a goal for me in my work is trying to create cities like that.
1: Makes sense. And and it's interesting. Uh, I'm thinking about Tokyo for a minute where there's huge buildings, but the step down in most of the neighborhoods and the streetscape feels very life-size, massive number of people. But there's an excitement and a relatability to it and then if you look up, it's a whole different story. Yeah. But in Copenhagen, and we were just in Oslo, totally feels at the size and scale that you feel comfortable.
0: Yeah. I often talk about, and I probably will more in our conversation, about how we lived in cities together for 7,000 years, right? right. And looking at all of these cities across the board, different continents, you know, cultures that didn't know each other existed because we, you know, you know, far away from each other, we were basically creating the same urban fabric everywhere, an Aztec city, an Inca city, the Roman cities, the Mesopotamium. basically the same urban structure. Big public squares, small homes, everybody had their life outside, and that scale was very, very life-size. So that, that is natural to us. That is you know, almost urban anthropologically correct. Then the automobile came along in the 1920s really, and we started letting it into our cities and that changed everything across the board. Like, so the list of things that that changed in our Mm -hmm. mentalities that we aren't even aware of is, is massive. Because of the scale of the automobile, we needed more room for it. We started dumbing down our architecture because, you know, you don't need, like, if just looking out the window here, you can see the amazing brickwork on the sixth floor across the street. You can see the gargoyles and, you know, all the details that they put so much effort into in architecture for centuries. You didn't need them anymore because you're just blowing down the road at 50 kilometers an hour. So they literally dumbed down the architecture. You know, this mostly in the States, you have, like, your uh, shallow... um, strip malls. Mm-hmm. The facades are really huge. The signs are are simpler with fewer words. It just says okay. liquor, <laughs> 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 movies, you know, <laughs> <laughs> boom. And so because you're, you're doing 50 down a street, you know, you you don't have time for details. So we, we used to be a front porch society all over the world. Cars came along and there was literally nothing to look at on the from the front porch anymore. So we said, honey, let's buy a barbecue and make a backyard, right? Mm-hmm. So we retreated. Uh, away from the streets that were the most democratic space in the history of Homo sapiens, but they were taken over by a transportation dictatorship, the automobile, right? <laughs> so, yeah, so many things changed. So, i just like to point out that this was pretty natural for us for for thousands of years, so therefore it should not be difficult to return to to streets that that feel life-size, that feel uh, more at scale with all of us.
1: And it's a street that you can cross comfortably. Because there's a lot of streets I walk across, where, even, and I'm a healthy person, 65 year old, but I'm nervous walking across that street. I have I'm cautious. I'm nervous. It's not at the scale of a human being, so you just get across the street to worry
0: about. It. And if you're an elderly or a kid, oh my God. I mean, this is a rabbit hole, but American engineering standards, you guys were the first to to really embrace the automobile and figure out a lot of standards. By the time the automobile really started showing up in Europe was post-war, right? The massive transformation of cities. The Copenhagen you see here, man, it was it looked like an American city in the fifties and sixties, there was yeah. a lot of traffic. You know, all of our public squares that we all sit on now in the city center were parking. You know, it was insane. Copenhagen wasn't always Copenhagen, right? Um, but a lot of the standards were just copy pasted along with the infrastructure in the fifties all over the world, and especially <laughs> here in Europe. So you walking around Copenhagen today right. um, and feeling hopefully you know more comfortable, a lot of these things, we've taken these standards that are carved in stone. It's like day one of your engineering education at university in right. most places around the world. One of them, it's called the 85th percentile, super dorky engineering name. But that basically dictates the speed on streets. It's like what the 15%, well, the speed that 85% of the motorists are driving down that street, that should be the speed of the street which is insane because Circular motorists, want, logic. Yeah, but motorists want to go faster, right? right. So you, they design a street in the States and They go, everybody's going over the speed limit here. Let's up the speed limit, which we know now is to be insane. You know, you right. lower speed limits. Like in 200 European cities, the baseline speed is 20 miles per hour. Mm-hmm. It simply saves lives. It makes you feel nicer as you walk down the street. You know, all, all these different circles
1: there. accomplish the same kind of thing.
0: Yeah, yeah. So, pedestrian crossings is another weird engineering standard they have called the 15th percentile. So in most cities in the world, A, you wait forever to cross as a pedestrian. You are not even a second-class citizen. You're fourth class. And then you have an incredibly short amount of time. They they calculate it basically for people like us who could just quickly stride across the street. No elderly or children or parents with kids were ever taken into consideration. So maybe when you walk you know, away from here and and spend time here in Copenhagen, notice how short the the traffic lights are. It's simply a way of making it feel like you're always getting to where you're going. So bikes, we can talk about transportation uh, psychology with bikes. You don't want to stop on a bike, right? It's a momentum Mm -hmm. machine. So the lights are, they, they switch really, really quickly. And the traffic flows even better than these standards that we adopted, right? So that's also a benefit when you walk. You'll notice that, oh, we just missed the green. Yeah, you know what? Thirty seconds later, you're going right. Where other cities, you'll have to wait four minutes. I mean, it's insane. So therefore, you will rush at the end of the yellow light. You're going to rush to get through it because
1: you might have to wait two, three minutes. Yeah,
0: yeah, and or and you're going to, you know, know, oh, it's going to it turned yellow, but I'm going to, you know, run across anyways. Otherwise, I have to wait forever. So Mm -hmm. if you're sitting on a bike, you're going, oh, I missed the light, right? You know, even worse than being a pedestrian. Oh, you know, but you know, in the you know, regular people in the city don't have any clue about this, but it's made intuitive for them. That's okay if I miss that light because. Mm-hmm. I'll be moving shortly, you know. Mm-hmm. So yeah, a lot of these a lot of these different, you know, design elements uh, are important.
1: And are you an urban planner by training? Proudly, what brought you
0: to this? No. Okay. Absolutely. I have no academic baggage from uh, some university where I just learned the same thing as the urban planners before me, you know. I came at this from you know, at left, you know from left field and working in other industries, television, film, journalism, and stuff like that. Started a couple blogs back in two thousand six seven, which just exploded in my face. You know, uh-huh. first time anybody had seen blogs about regular people on bikes. Uh, one of them was called Cycle Chic, just elegantly dressed Copenhageners on bikes. Uh, became like known as a fashion blog, which was weird because I didn't start a fashion blog, but. It hit this 2007 blog wave we all started writing blogs and back in Mm -hmm. seven and fashion blogs street style blogs were like the first mover so mine was just lumped into that category which was fun because i'm just a street photographer i'm not a fashion photographer but that exploded in my face and then i started another blog Eyes, in order to like finally realize how did we get here Uh i didn't know anything i just rode bikes every day like everybody did why is this interesting to people abroad right so it was the right time for the bicycle to come back to our consciousness, right? I sort of went, okay, this is just massive now, so I, I'm gonna I'm gonna look at this more carefully, mm-hmm. and then I never stopped looking at it, and then so now I'm hired as an urban planner, a design urban designer, you know, all over the world. I've worked in 100 cities around the world, so I just but I'm like my colleagues, the kind of like oh, he's not even educated as an urban planner, and I'm going, you damn right, I'm not. <laughs> look and look how how well I'm doing, you know, because mm-hmm. I don't think. I think out of the box, not in the in the packaged academic box that they were all taught to think in. You know, so yeah, so that's why I did proudly know things.
1: That's a fair deal. And then did that come together? And we're going to talk about bicycling in a moment. But did that come together with the bicycling interest and the journalism interest when Lulu talked about life size city? Did kind of the concept of life size city and then the bicycling. Which came first, and you're becoming not just an urbanist, but a planner of sorts?
0: It started all very organically. I did a lot of street photography, had a bit of a following on this one website. So one day, I just took a picture in the morning rush hour, 14th of November, 2006. Right. Um, I know this because this picture became quite well-known. Um and it was just a, a woman on, on the bike. The light had turned green and she hadn't moved yet, which is weird because you you go, right? right. Even in a car, right? And I'm going, okay, wow. Pillar of calm in a world of chaos, funny. And then I just didn't even think about it. It's not even a great photo, but then I put it out on, my, on this website and all these people started reacting, most of them Americans. And they're saying, mm-hmm. dude, how does she ride a bike in a skirt? You know, it wasn't any kind of weird male gaze thing. It was just like, right. how does she do that? And I'm going like, what a stupid question. That's what you do, you know? Right. I knew nothing about it, right? completely ignorant to uh, this. So I started taking more photos and that grew into this massive blog, um, Cycle Chic. And they, we had copycat blogs all over the world. And then I started getting curious because it just kept going on, right? right? And yeah. the Copenhagenized blog, like I said, that I started, that exploded in my face. Back then, there were no blogs or websites for just regular people on bikes. Everything was sport-oriented. It just was kept snowballing. And then it kept sucking me in until at some point a colleague at the city of Copenhagen where I was starting to do some work with them, freelancing for them, he said, dude, you gotta start a consultancy. And I said, Why the hell would I do that? Like I'm, you know, I'm I come from creative industry. That just sounds super right. boring. Eh? A <laughs> and, and but he said, in five to ten years, the entire world is gonna want to know how we did what we've been doing here for the past 40 years. And there's nobody right. to tell them. And so start a consultancy. So I sat and you know chewed on that for a while. And then I started one back in I was just like. In 2010, really, is when uh, I guess called Copenhagenized Eyes okay. uh, Design mm-hmm. Company. And then the Lulu thing, that came later. I don't know okay. where that came from. That's just her beautiful brain that started thinking about it. And then so everything is a continual snowball, you know. Uh, now I'm pretty established in what I do. But it was just like, oh, okay, I, you can't give this up. Oh, I have to go do a consultancy. Oh, I'm getting jobs from cities around the world right. almost right away, you know. So, yeah, um, I'm fine with all that. It was just, but it was a weird, uh, you know, uh, fork in the road that I was pushed down in my otherwise you know, normal career.
1: Right. right. Yeah. And and how much, it, it's funny, I keep pushing back talking about bicycles, but mm-hmm. how much does Danish design matter to this and matter to how it worked here? Because we I don't think about design a lot. We talk about design a lot in the states because of the iPhone. That's like a big deal. But design matters here in Denmark and I think is part of, and form follows, function,
0: or when you create the design, people come to it. So talk about that a little bit. One of my main talking points is coming from left field, not being influenced right. at all by by the academic aspect, is that we have this perception of streets as things that need to be engineered, right? Mm-hmm. Engineering is so powerful without reason. You know, we right. put uh, traffic engineering, specifically traffic engineering, very important to point that out, not right. all engineering. We put them on a pedestal for the past 70 years, an undeserved pedestal, right? And we give them so much power and influence about how our our streets are engineered. So I started looking at this years ago. I'm going, you know, looking back at 7,000 years of of, of urban history, where the streets were the most democratic space. We did everything in the streets, you know? You and I wouldn't be sitting here. We'd be sitting out on a bench somewhere doing a a 15th century podcast or whatever, right? So I started thinking about design because— I am Danish. I live in Denmark. And I just realized that whoever made, you know, the microphone in front of me, right? Or mm-hmm. the phone, the there's a design team somewhere in the world. And all they want is for you and me to have a good design experience, a user experience, right? The iPhone, the Samsung competitor, right? right. It's all designed so that we keep using it. And it's good. It's functional. So, the other the other thing is, yeah, this is one of the world's great design cultures, and I don't know really other places uh, where it is so deeply ingrained. My kids have design classes from the third grade, and they learn on day one, Danish design is practical, functional, elegant. Mm-hmm. Boom. And that's all it is. There's nothing else. Go make something. So like, you know, little dorky third graders come home with weird things they made, but they have to make it based on those three principles. So my question still today is like, why don't we design our streets? For the humans that use them, like we design everything else in our lives, mm-hmm. instead of only relying on engineering, most of which is based on mathematical models, you know, from the 1950s, and no, there's no new thinking in engineering. And there never will be because everything is pretty simple and done. But still, we we continue to uh, allow them to have influence on on our streets, in our neighborhoods, and, and mm-hmm. in between our cities and everything. Right. So, design is something we're all designers. We all make design choices. You looked at those shorts you're wearing and said, yeah, those are cool. That'll work for me. It's a design choice, right? Mm-hmm. You go and choose a toothbrush. You're going, I haven't had a blue one for a while. I'm going to take a blue. You know what I mean? Ooh, that one's a bit cool. I can, you know, brush my tongue with the back. You know, what? whatever. <laughs> All the different things we use. And so that should be absolutely the case with our streets, our democratic streets, um, that they are designed for human use and not just engineered to allow motor vehicles to go back So and you're equating engineering with motor vehicle
1: movement.
0: Versus design of streets with people, bicycles, transportation. Benches, carrying trees, bosses, the, public seating. And uh, the car. Cafes that are allowed to, uh, you, know, ex, you know, have tables, outdoor serving. You know, and everything. And, All the things that, that we had for so many years and we need again. It's interesting.
1: In this town, when I was here four years ago and did some bicycling, I f- the rules became obvious to me and I followed the rules. They became comfortable and non-threatening. And then there were things along the road, streetlights for bicyclists. I'm like, holy cow, this is a streetlight for me. And then there were little places for me to put my hand at a streetlight or to put my foot to rest it. And I knew exactly what it was. I knew why it was there, even though no one told me. It was really—design does create people
0: to move around in a way that you're asking them to do. And good design eliminates any bad behavior, you know? Uh, the railings and footrests that we have around the city that you mentioned, the city put them in, and when they their, their narrative was, hey, we're just going to put these in to spoil cyclists. That was literally what they said. Uh-huh. It has a minor behavioral advantage in that, uh, you know, you don't want to stop on a bike, so some people might continue to Do try to crawl, thing. and maybe you go a little bit too far in a traffic, but there you, you just put your hand up. You stay on the oh. saddle, and you pull yourself into motion afterwards. So they never, ever had a how-to-use-this sign on them. Uh-huh. Everybody just went, Oh my god, that's totally awesome! Because if you're going to be walking around uh, the Copenhagen, so if you see like a light post Uh or some kind of post that is near the stop line on the cycle tracks, on Uh the look at the this one level of it, it's rubbed smooth because even there, people one person is going to lean right on on the light post. It's it's like it's like the bicycle urbanism version of Buddha's tummy, right? We just rub it smooth and all over the city. It's so cool. So yeah. We interact with our city, you know, we lean up against it, and the city sort of supports us when we need it, right? That's good design.
1: Uh Last question before we really talk about bicycles is about bicycles in non-temperate cities. So in America, we'd make the assumption that you can't get rid of the car, but B, we'd make the assumption that you'd only do it in San Diego because San Diego has the best weather and you wouldn't ride in the rain, you wouldn't ride in the cold, you wouldn't ride in the snow. But this city has all of that year-round. So do people bicycle here as a commuting pattern only in the
0: four months of summer? <laughs> no. 75% of all the cyclists here, and I think there's about 400,000 people riding a bike for transport every day uh-huh. in, a, uh, in a normal period. Right now it's summer holidays, right? But uh-huh. 75% ride all winter. You know, The goal is making… <laughs> The bicycle, the fastest way from A to B. I call it A to Bism, and this is basically plugging into what every Homo sapien who's ever lived (laughs) wants, Mm -hmm. and that's to go effectively and quickly from A to B. Right. And again, we do it all day long in our daily lives. You know, you're at the supermarket, and all you needed was one thing at the back, and you're you're going to navigate. Okay, what's the quickest aisle to get out? You know, or you're you know, in a restaurant, and you have to go to the bathroom, you navigate, you know, mentally what's the quickest way around the tables to get there. We do it all day all day long. If you make the bicycle the fastest way from A to B, which it is in this city by far, it outcompetes all other transport forms, people will do it. It's it's that simple. A lot of the narrative in North America, um is ride a bike. It's good for you. Save a right. polar bear on the bicycle today. Climate, you know, right. climate change and uh, get healthy. It's all that. And we know that. Humans know that. If you if you tell me that I can go anywhere I want in this city quickly, quicker on a bike, right. I'm taking a bike, right? And and, and weird people ride bikes. <laughs> people who don't right. want to ride a bike are seen on bikes because it's simply the fastest way for and to And it's not hard to do, and it doesn't require great, great athletic, capability no you see who's riding around here you know uh, you know you can ride Everybody. through on your uh, on your racing bike and you know you'll have a mother with two kids and shopping on her bike blow past you like you're carved in stone right and then you realize okay this is different right so I mean it's it's so deeply ingrained uh, in in the in, in the culture here um, but it's also designed to be the quickest way if we want people not to drive a car we right. have to make driving a car difficult we have to use road design we have to make it more expensive here, we have 150% tax on new cars. Mm-hmm. It's a really wealthy country, so car sales are going up every single year. So it's not, we need to up that tax, <laughs> the right. tax on new cars. But we're doing everything we can to make it difficult. One-way street systems through the city center, you know, where you ride a bike and you're there. In two minutes, you drive a car, it takes you 15. This is, this is we talk about carrots and sticks, right? right. And there's, there's no carrot here. All we need is the biggest stick in the history of urbanism in order to at least the number of cars in our cities by half that's uh-huh. just a good place to start i'm not the car free city guy it's never going to happen but let's just get rid of half of them you know and, and then use that space more intelligently
1: it's funny we hit a corporate retreat a couple years ago and at the end of the afternoon session we had 45 minutes to get across the city to go bowling together and i hopped on a city rental bike which i'd paid for a monthly so I'm, this is free mm-hmm. And the other nine people got into three different Ubers. And I rode across the city at rush hour and I beat them by about 20 minutes. And they were all late by about 15 minutes. (laughs) And I had a smile on my face and they were all pissed off. One thing you see with cyclists, I think this is true. Cyclists kind of smile and car drivers kind of, like don't, there's not that smile on their
0: face unless they're on the highway and going really fast. Oh, absolutely. I don't, well, there's one thing like, Years ago, when I started the blogs and it was all becoming very international, one guy's going, hey, I'm a cyclist from somewhere in the States. And when I'm riding my bike and I see another cyclist, I wave. Mm-hmm. And this was really before we had done a lot of films and, and photos. He says, do cyclists wave at each other in Copenhagen? I'm going, oh, my no, God, I can't wave at 10,000 people a day. This is boring. <laughs> and, and and I'm also Nordic, so I don't want to wave at people. You know, I want to be moody and Nordic. But sure, you're, you're at a red light. On a super busy intersection in the morning rush hour, you got a hundred cyclists every light cycle. You know, right. in in the in the intense rush hour, yeah, you might flirt with somebody. You know, your eyes might meet uh, somebody next to you. You might say, "Oh, that dude's got really cool shoes," huh? and think, I wonder, "I wonder what brand that is." You know, we don't talk, right? It's not we're not we're Nordic, <laughs> but we still. You're basically elbow to elbow with your fellow citizens. You're forced to be right. Somebody you're waiting for the light to change. Somebody sneezes, or somebody coughs, or somebody's mm-hmm. talking on their on their hand free telephone. Like you have all these human sounds. You sit in a car. All you got is you know a vacuum and maybe the radio playing. If you're if you've got that on, you know you, you're not interacting at all. You don't see any human forms. You don't. All you see is like a, the shoulder up, right, and one side of the head. When well, on a bike, you see humans all around you all day long. That is anthropology. That's you know right. transport anthropology you're interacting with your citizen and your fellow citizens in their full form and listening to, you know, all the sounds that humans make. So, you know what I mean? Like, uh, yeah. and, and the smells, you know, you could ride along in the morning rush hour and you just slip into this wake stream of somebody who just, you know, washed their hair. And it's this <laughs> really nice smell. Oh, and you just sit and linger in that scent, you know, and then, and then you go off, you know, it's a sensory experience cycling in a city like, um, like Copenhagen where it's normal people, regular people doing it. Right.
1: Yeah. And also the regular people I've noticed just walking around the street, If you're noticing someone else, you may notice their socks. You probably don't notice their bike. For us cyclists in spandex, we look down and see what kind of bike they have and how nice it is. But here, the bikes are all kind of pedestrian or mundane or utilitarian. And I wonder, and for me, I'm also worried about the place I'm going to park my bike. But I have a fancy road bike. I care about if it gets stolen, I'm in trouble. But if I have a bike that I see on the street here, just leans against the wall and it may be locked or
0: not. Like, talk about, do people steal these things or not? We have bike theft here, I think, in Copenhagen, you know, which it's about, what, 750,000 people in in the main part of the city or not all the municipalities around us. That's even, it's like 2 million there. But I think we we get how many, like 20,000 bikes stolen every year. And, you know, of course, it's irritating to get your bike stolen. I, I try to explain in the book something that is really hard for a lot of people to understand, but... This, even the, a friend of mine at the city of Copenhagen, a planner, he says, bikes get stolen, but who's stealing a bike? It's somebody standing there who doesn't have a bike. So they take a bike. If it's unlocked, like, you know, if you forget to lock it. And, and and that's, you know, yeah, it's illegal. Stealing's wrong. But it's super interesting to try and and understand how we all just kind of feel that bikes are belong to all of us. Two-thirds of Danes have said that they've tried to steal a bike. That's like, a, you know, it's we, you, you do it, you know, you think about it at least, or you, or you've done it when you were you know younger or whatever. So it's like it's like it's like a big bike share system right. <laughs> for the past hundred and thirty years because the bikes are just generally like you say uh, utilitarian, right? They're you know with a basket and a back rack or whatever. So you know, I, I'm not condoning stealing bikes, but like it, I just under try to understand the mentality. It's like that's my bike and that's gone, so I need another bike, so I'll take this bike, right? So bike theft is a thing, but I'm not saying I'm okay with that. I just kind of understand that. It's all of our bikes, mm-hmm. you know? We have a kind of a you know, casual relationship with bikes. So I want to
1: contrast with you, and maybe not pick Copenhagen, so pick another city where it works really well, and you have the Copenhagenized top 10 cities as an index that changes every year, but not moderately. Mm-hmm. There's also the New York Times just published something with, and I see it all the time, the best bike cities in America, none of which are on the Copenhagenized list. And so I want us to get there in the states, and so I want the, maybe the rest of the podcast to talk about how we make this work there. But I want to know what it looks like where it does work well, and how it got there because it didn't magically happen. So maybe tell a story of a city other than this one, since we spent so much time on Copenhagen, that has created that culture and where it
0: works and how what it looks like feels like. Back in 2011. One of my staff members found some article online, Virgin Airlines blog. You know, it was like a travel one. Into, oh, the world's top 10 bicycle cities. And we're going, oh, interesting. And we're looking at these cities. We're going, what? This is like some, you know, some intern who Googled for 10 minutes and slapped right. out an article. We're like laughing. This is, it was ridiculous. Um, Copenhagen was there, but fine. And then and I said, okay, come on. What, is there a ranking out there, you know, that we can use? Um, and there was nothing. So we said, let's do it. So mm-hmm. that was the first time we made the Copenhagenized Index in 2011. And we, I had a mathematician friend and I looked at some of the other really respected rankings, like the economists, they always have rankings. For yep. And I said, let's, let's make a real academic, like real proper and designed the criteria and everything. And then we selected a, a small number of cities just to start. And we just slapped it out on the blog back then, you know, sort of more information for us, mm-hmm. you know, as a business. And then that just exploded, like it's the world's first bicycle-friendly city ranking. And apparently everybody really wanted that. (laughs) And so we did it every two years and we haven't done it since 19, actually. It was amazing to see how people were so fascinated by it and trying to understand, okay, we're not on that list. How can we get on that list? You know, uh, we had cities lobbying us, not for money to get higher up on the list, but sending us you know, here's what we've done last year. Look at how much money we've spent. The right. city of Bordeaux in France—they like literally send us a little package saying we're, we're doing some cool stuff. We, you know, we want to get on the list, right? So you know, that's the good kind of lobbying, right? right. Um, and uh, you know, there was the head of. Amsterdam at one point was number one, Copenhagen was number two, and the head of the bicycle program for the city of Amsterdam, she says, Oh, for God's sake, can you like make us number two? I said, No, it's a ranking. I can't make you number two. And she says, Oh, my life is so much easier if we're number two. I can say to the politicians, we just fell from number one to number two. What can we do to get back to number one? Right. So a lot of these cities use it politically. Right. Although some of the cities, the local activists and and advocates, uh they talk to the politicians say, we got to do more recycling and they's going what are you talking about we're number 14 on the on the on the world's index right so they's kind of like see we're doing good we got something the competition's not really that strong so i think that's why there are some cities on the list that maybe need a lot of work a list like the one you mentioned the new york times you know yeah if you have a list of the of the best cricket clubs to choose some random sport, you know, in the world, right. there's not going to be any American <laughs> cricket clubs on that list. But if you only do the world, the America's best cricket clubs, then you're going to get a top ten, right? So, you can always do a ranking of uh, the top cities in the states. Um, mm-hmm. But you're right, none of them are on the last edition. But Minneapolis squeezed in. I can't remember what year it was, mm-hmm. 2017, maybe. Not a temperate city. No, no I mean, and that—that's political will. They just started, you know, paving uh, bicycle infrastructure, and I think the last I heard, they were at six percent, which is sadly incredibly high in the United States. Right? Your your darling bicycle city since the 1960s is Davis, California. What, mm-hmm. 75,000 people, university town, and that's that's great, but. Nobody's ever been anywhere near it. So I think Minneapolis, Portland, they were like the darlings back in, you know, 2007. So, but they, they they haven't done much since, right? So talk
1: about cities that truly are in the top 10. Mm. And then American cities and what pieces and components make us get to those places. So what defines places that work really well? And then what are the missing pieces in
0: some of the cities in the States? Okay. And we can pick a city to say, hey, here's how we can start solving it there. Well, the top two are are always Copenhagen and Amsterdam, so that's boring, right? So we don't need to talk about that. The one I think I could mention, which we still talk about, is Seville in Spain. Fair deal. You know, massively hot in the summer, 45 degrees Celsius summers, you know. It's a big city and a big university city. And they just looked at it and they said, we have 0.2% riding bikes. Like, the modal (laughs) share for bikes was 0.2. And they said, "Let's we can do better than that. And not literally but infrastructure network of connected infrastructure cohesive coherent bike lanes in a network showed up basically fell out of the sky right and now that that city went in four years they went to seven percent now they're in their 2.0 phase they're they're improving upon their success so nobody everybody said oh it's too hot to ride a bike there you know, can't do that. Oh, it's too cold there. You mm-hmm. mentioned it before. Right. In the book, there's a whole chapter on myth busting. I've heard everything and i it, it's just, it, none of it's true. Somebody says, people won't ride a bike there because it's hot or cold. That person is speaking for themselves. <laughs> it is a soul voice. They don't right. speak for the rest of us, right? Every city on the planet has 25% of the population waiting for safe infrastructure. And then they'll ride. Mm-hmm. Maybe a colder city, a hillier city, a hotter city might not hit the 62% that we have here in Copenhagen, mm-hmm. <laughs> but they have 25% just lying in wait, waiting for political will and uh, visionary planning to finally show and up.
1: So components are bike lanes, components are bike parking. And where does bike share fit in? When we're going to talk about scooters, helmets. We got a lot, you know, we got a lot to unpack here.
0: What I often say is there's no chicken and egg. There's only bicycle infrastructure. The network here, it's basically 100 years old in 1915 we had like many cities around the world at that time 20% of the population of los angeles was on, on bikes in 100 years ago yeah, yeah serious was, oh my god yeah all over the world man the bikes just ruled supreme no invention has transformed human society more quickly and more effectively than the bicycle the car did also negatively but it took a longer time fine um so here we're going okay we got to start separating the, the bikes from the pedestrians and the you know the horses and wagons and some motorized vehicles back then and so they said right let's make an on-street protected bike lane parallel with the sidewalk and they said, and that just worked that was copy pasted all over europe london had one in 1934 liverpool started putting them in germany had a whole network of them um, so this that's really the best practice design is like 100 years old it's another thing i talk about and this is nothing new we know how to do it so infrastructure is absolutely key protected lanes parallel to the sidewalk, which you've seen on all the streets. Where now the under. cars have moved, the parking spaces have moved yeah. from the curb to on the other side of the bike lane. Yeah. Why is that? What does that do? Because it's safe. It's literally 100 years. We've been, you know, this we've been testing this. We've been making all the mistakes for a century so that you don't have to.
1: Right? Does this work so the car door doesn't open and kill you? Or is it also protecting you so you're
0: on the other side of traffic or both? Putting bikes like you see in North America Sadly, in a little painted bike lane, yeah. paint does not protect anybody from anything. In the between the door zone and moving traffic is the stupidest place to put a bike. Right, mm-hmm. you're in the door zone, and there and you get hit by a door. You fall into moving traffic. Like we've never really? done that here. Like, There's some streets that are quiet here where they maybe will allow this type of infrastructure, uh, but on most streets, no way. We've learned that lesson. We've had people dying, so we don't do it anymore. Also in our modern society, 85% of all cars are single occupants. So the driver's going to get out on the traffic side. The general difference I've noticed in my work through the years is that in North America, the planners and engineers, um, they equate the bicycle with a vehicle. It's a car. It's got wheels. So they kind of put it in the same box as mm-hmm. automobile and the way they design the, the traffic uh, for it. We've never done that here. The bicycle is just a fast-moving pedestrian. So as you've seen walking around the city, uh, the the cycle tracks are parallel to the sidewalk, right? Mm -hmm. So I'm riding along and I'm going, ooh, I'm I'm window shopping, right? Um, I'm not out in the traffic trying to, you know, watch out for doors opening and cars turning. You know, I'm in a protected space. And that hierarchy of space is absolutely integral. If you see a pedestrian at this time of year, (laughs) the tourists are all walking in our bike links. They don't realize what they are. And then ding, you you know, oh, it's a, a lot of Copenhagen jokes about it. But you know that is my space when i'm riding a bike if i'm a pedestrian i know where i'm supposed to be if i'm a motorist i know where i'm supposed to be at the intersections we mix and match and we 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 figure that out right with various uh design choices but we all know where we're supposed to be where in north american cities you know so many of them it's just a painted lane you're not kept safe from anybody and mm-hmm. uh you're not really given the respect that you deserve as a person who wants to ride a bike in a city so You know, that's the long version, but the short version is, yeah, infrastructure, man. Um, Of course, parking as well. You know, when you look at Denmark and the Netherlands, it's, you know, like the Galapagos Islands. They evolve just a little bit differently, but it's basically the same thing. But they're happy culturally and historically to put bikes into parking underneath train stations. You know, we've never done that here. Bikes are parked at the destination. Copenhageners, if you put in a big underground bike parking at the central station, nobody would use it because it's like, I want to park up on the street surface and just walk through the door. Mm-hmm. So there's design challenges trying to find space for all of these bikes around busy hubs, right? Mm-hmm. Like our train stations. But that's that's how we're a little bit different than the Netherlands. But yeah, the point is parking.
1: And we're going to keep bouncing on mm-hmm. subjects here. Uh, talk about helmets. I don't see helmets in copenhagen i see these things around people's necks but i don't see helmets and one of the debates in san francisco was let's not allow bike share without helmet requirements and that was they still have bike share and there's no helmet requirements but i've seen almost no helmets here
0: yeah i mean that's because you're from america and you have a liability culture and Mm -hmm. all the world's largest helmet companies are in the states uh pushing their product for years so i have one of my first TED talks that I did, TEDx talks, uh, is about helmets. You can, yeah. you can look look that <laughs> up will. because it's, uh, I, I got so tired of talking about it that I literally said yes to do a, a, a talk about why you know helmets are quite irrelevant. Um, the industrial design of them, the way it, if you tell people that it's dangerous and you have to protect yourself, mm-hmm. people literally stop riding. Luckily, there were very few places in the world that actually made it mandatory. Australia New Zealand did in the early 90s. And anytime somebody somewhere in certainly in Europe and other parts of the world promote, uh, sorry, um, uh, try to implement a helmet law, everybody's going, but look at Australia, New Zealand, they all stopped cycling, you know, school bike racks were packed in the 80s, empty from the 90s, like they killed off urban cycling for, for regular people, the whole, you know, if you look at the science of it, it's very different than all the anecdotes you're going to hear from people. Oh, my God, it saved my life. Okay, how do you know that? Did you go out and do exactly the same accident the next day? I mean, it's 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 just so much emotional crap that you have to deal with. So, the European Union, uh, was that maybe about 15 years ago, they had a big sort of white paper on our transport and it literally says in there that promotion of helmets should not be a public issue. Mm-hmm. It should be left up to the shopkeepers and manufacturers to sell their products. Because if we tell people wear a helmet, wear a helmet, wear a helmet, people won't ride a bike. It's only 10% of the world's daily cyclists who wear a helmet. So when you live in America, you think that, oh my God, everywhere around the world, everybody does this. No. You go to Berlin, you go to Munich, you go to Paris. You know, there's very, there are very few helmets because we know that it's really silly to promote it. If somebody wants to wear one, they can do whatever the hell they want. I don't care. But, but
1: you've also put the money in separating bikes from cars. So if yeah. you're going to separate bikes from cars, I'm going to cycle on the weekends and I'm going to be with cars because that's the faster, right? That's
0: what I'm doing. Then I want to have a helmet because I'm with I'm playing with the cars. Yeah, different different subject. It's in the whole. It, it's a different subject, but it's you know in the TED talk I'm talking about how you know what is the industrial design of a helmet. Nobody talks about this. What is it actually designed for? And the helmet manufacturers lobby constantly when they propose a a, a higher rating a safety rating. Right? right. Let's make this a little bit better. Oh no no no! They literally lobby against it because they know that their helmet is if. It's 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 not very good at the moment, and they'll sell more of them. And if they, it's going to be just expensive for them to make better helmets. So, what is it designed for? It's designed to protect your head from non-life-threatening injuries in solo accidents under 20 kilometers per hour, 15 miles an hour. Right? If you get hit by a car, there are forces at work that simply a helmet is not designed to protect you from. Most of it has. If you land on the crown of your head. That's the best place the sides not so well It's like literally crappy design <laughs> and they know it and they still push it like it's a drug right Another aspect to this is as you know you're talking about how you know you enjoy uh, race recycling, touring and all that it's really kind of a part of the gear you need to have in a culture like that dude, you need the gloves with no fingers, man. What shoes are you buying this year? Oh, yeah, i got some new spandex, you know, um, and your helmet and everything. You know what I mean? It's part of the identity of 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 that kind of cyclist, right? And fair enough. Like, no mm-hmm. big deal. It's not like that for regular citizens. You know, if I wanted to go bowling, if I want to say, let's go bowling. Get your wife back here. Let's go bowling. We'll drink some beers. We'll put on some stinky used shoes and we'll just bowl for a couple hours. That would be fun. But, if, I, if you said, great, and I said, okay, so I have all the gear for you. I have the big goofy shirt, right? <laughs> I got a hand, a wrist protector. i am got a, this ball, and you have to polish it with this very expensive cream. The shoes, oh, my God. You know, that, you're not, We're not going to go bowling, are we? Because you're telling me I have to dress up to do something fun or right. something practical, like cycling, right? So there's that, too, right? Fair deal. So talk about how bike share fits into this and fixed bike share versus bikes sitting all over the place and hanging out and wherever they are. Literally everything we need to design a city for bicycles is invented, most of it, about 100 years ago, right? Which I think is great Mm because it works. So we know how to copy-paste this, what you see here in Copenhagen, into any damn city on the planet, right? Which is what I've also been doing for years and with with success, right? The one thing that I didn't see coming was bike share, and I was happy to see it. You Mm -hmm. know, the first ones that emerged um, were the fixed stations, which for me still makes sense more than the other one because it's like a bus stop. If you right. live in a neighborhood and you're, you know, I know, I know where my bike share system is. It's right there, you know, like in Paris is one of the great cities for bike share. You got your card, you know, your little fob, bing, yeah. and you, you're on a bike in two seconds. So, and you know where to drop it off,
1: and you've paid for it, and you don't have to have it in your room, and you don't have
0: to worry about it, and it's the same bike for everybody. Yeah, I and mean, in Paris also, you have a really cheap subscription, and it's then wonderful yeah, the first thirty minutes is always free. In Paris is despite what we think, it's a small city. You're going from one neighborhood to another, to that cool bar or to, you know, to a cafe. 30 minutes is, is, is all you need. So that's, they make it free. It's awesome. So then the free-floating ones started to emerge, app-based, where yep. you can look on your phone, is there a bike near me? They're still around, but I just think that they're less practical because then I got to wander to find a bike and then I'm just going to not bother. I'm going to take a bus or a metro or whatever. You know what I mean? I'm going to do other things. It's not that... Making the bicycle the absolute, you know, default in your brain. As soon as I leave this apartment, my brain is saying, go get your bike. And then I'll go, wait a minute, I'm only going to that supermarket. I can walk. It's also Mm -hmm. nice to walk in my neighborhood. Or, you know what, that's a bit too crazy today. Um, You know, I can, you know, take the metro. Or it's far, I'll take my bike to the station, put my bike on the train, which all the trains are designed for here. And then, you know, so, yeah, the free-floating system is popular. But, yeah, we... I don't like it in the sense that they park them randomly on sidewalks. They are pedestrian hazards.
1: So let's keep bouncing around with thoughts. Mm -hmm. Electric bikes, and what do electric bikes do for commuters who might otherwise not feel capable of riding? Does it matter? Does it not matter? And it's huge in the
0: States, so it's really, really popular. There's a whole rabbit hole there about the American fascination with speed. Mm -hmm. I think this is really a knock-on from your a century of car culture right here it's not speed you know it's it's just getting somewhere, you know effic- effectively and quickly right that doesn't mean you have to go fast that electric bikes are so massive in the states um i understand it because of this right um mm-hmm. but yeah i'm i'm the guy who's the e-bike skeptic i have this article that mm-hmm. i published and irritated so many people but inspired others hopefully i think that we have they have a value uh, and a purpose for you know five ten percent of the population some elderly, uh, dis- disabled people, uh-huh. you know. I mean, th- There are so many questions. The article I wrote is very long and very well researched. So I would totally recommend it. If you Google the e-bike skeptic, you'll probably find it. it. It's interesting because on for cyclists,
1: not for what we're talking about, but for cyclists, it does make a difference. So my wife did it on back roads, and she did a 100K bike ride that she might have otherwise wanted to do, a 30K bike ride Self-powered, but with the electric bike, she was able to do more and enjoy it. And I have lots of friends, particularly at my age group, who are doing that. But that's cycling, not commuting, and not short commutes in a city like
0: this. So they're different subjects. It is, and there are lots of sunshine stories, as we say in Danish, uh, yeah. and and I appreciate them all, and it's great. But she wouldn't have done that if, if she, you know, that's fine. What I don't like is the hype because that industry who makes e-bikes, man, they Mm. are just borrowing all the tactics from the car industry. I've seen websites, you know, the old fashioned bicycle is gone in 10 years, the world, the future is electric. Mm -hmm. And when you know what I know and you work with what I work with, um, on an e-bike, the health benefits, which we really measure a lot here. You guys have a privatized you know, health industry. So I know in my work in American cities, this is a less relevant point. But for us here, everything is intertwined. It's a spider's web. So health savings here benefit schools or parks there. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, so the health benefits fall by 70% on an e-bike. Most people who ride e-bikes are people who already ride bikes. So we enable them to perhaps be lazier you know, in, mm-hmm. in an urban context, right? Mm-hmm. Bicycles have worked perfectly in every city on the planet for about 130 years you know so i don't know why 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 fix something that wasn't broken Uh, electric mobility for like i said you know the elderly and disabled people that's fine Mm -hmm. we have a lot we have 50,000 cargo bikes here so a lot of people have converted their cargo bikes to electric you know even though like just five years ago there was 40,000 50,000 cargo bikes without any motors and we still dropped off two kids and with them picked up groceries on them, right? So, so I, I don't know if we just need the hype about it, and I think we need to be rational. And now we're seeing what's happening is that like injuries and death are like going Higher. up all across the board. All um, the countries that, um, that that have really embraced them early on, you know, China was a first mover here, like years before anybody else. There are cities in China banning e-bikes because people are getting killed and hurt. Um, Is that because the e-bike is in the same lane as the bike-bike and then the differential speeds are ones that can't play with each other very well? Speeds, basically. You know, the average speed of recycling in Copenhagen and Amsterdam, interesting how we just all settle on this subconscious uh, number, is uh, about 16 kilometers per hour, 10 miles an hour, right? Mm -hmm. You don't need to go faster than that because you're just going to work, you know, or to the supermarket or wherever you're going, the cinema. So, yeah, then you throw in 25K, right, into a 16K equation. That's never gonna work well. Also, a lot of people are inexperienced with them. A lot of elderly, like, you know, people over 60 uh, are the ones who are getting killed and hurt in the European countries that have embraced it. Germany, Switzerland, the Netherlands. We don't have that many here. It's kind of increasing a bit, but um, I'm kind of glad we don't have them in, in Copenhagen as much, you know. <laughs> the people who need them, use them. Everybody else, ride your damn bike. But the e-bike industries, there's, okay, oh, this is like, I'm trying to make this short, but it's not working. There's, in the Netherlands, there's a city. I have an urban planning friend a few years ago. He's going, dude, you know, I read your article um, about, and I said, great, fine, whatever. He's going, yeah, but you know what my job is? You know, the, the bike route coming from the north into the city of Groningen uh, in the north of the Netherlands? I'm going, yeah. He says, yeah, you know what my job is? I have to make a parallel bike lane now, only for e-bikes, because these two kids don't play together. Right. So I'm going, okay, great. So let's, you know, North American cities, struggling to get protected bike lanes. And now in the short amount of time, you're going to have to double that up. I mean, it's, it's a, you know, because of e-bikes, right? So that's that's the issue, really. Um, that, well, no, it's actually so many issues: health and safety. Then you can question now, you know, the the CO two footprint of a of a, an e-bike battery changes. Yeah, yeah, no, but if, the nickel comes from Putin, <laughs> so I don't know if that's really cool at the moment. Magnesium from Congo. I don't think they have uh, good unions in the mines in uh, Congo. You know, we don't <laughs> we don't question how these people are treated. Lithium from South America. All of that shipped to China and then shipped to us, like. I read that one electric car battery has a bigger CO two footprint, the production of it, mm-hmm. than an entire fossil fuel car, like an, you know, the ones we knew already. Just the battery, and and e bike batteries are the same. I, it's not the same one to one, but it's uh you know ten e bike one e bike battery is probably equivalent to ten normal bikes being made. What if you start to measure the the production and the CO two uh, footprint, right? So this it's a it's a Pandora's box, once you open it, most people don't want it. They just want to push a little button and go a bit faster and not have to work so hard on a bike, right? So, mm-hmm. yeah, no, I'm, I'm, you know, people get oh, anti-e-bike. I'm not anti-e-bike. The article is called the e-bike skeptic. I just want a rational discussion about mm-hmm. it instead of all of this corporate hype. Well, particularly, again, for the non-cyclist thing, for what
1: we're talking about, which is urban transportation, then it is more clear-cut than than I thought it was. And talk about scooters. How do they fit into this infrastructure? And one story, first time I was riding in San Francisco in bike lanes, as I was supposed to do, riding, and it was when scooters first came in. And like e-bikes... Bicycles know how to play with each other, but the scooters were like butterflies floating in between us and scared the shit out of them. That sounds way too
0: nice, that metaphor, butterflies. (laughs) Call them something else, like "Robo, robo robo-demons. I don't know. Okay, I'll apologize in advance for what I'm about to say. But in the urbanism context, in transportation in cities context, America remains light years behind the rest of the world. And I'm sad about that. I've worked in the States. You know, I go there. I have friends. You know, it's really interesting how that amazing country that has this can-do spirit, I know the complexities of why it's not happening, but still, you know, still so far behind. So I still, I see on Twitter now, some cities go, we just got our our e-scooters, like, Like, you know, three weeks ago, and I'm going, okay, we got rid of them in Copenhagen like a year and a half ago. Mm. Paris is getting rid of them now. Milan is trying to restrict them. All of these cities are getting rid of them. They're like the new Segway. The Segway was the future of transportation. Steve Jobs put money into it. It was was like, it's going to be, you know, like what the car was to the Why did they
1: get rid of them?
0: Again, same as e-bikes. Health and safety. <laughs> <laughs> I find it dangerous. People because- are dying. Like in France, in 19, where they really landed with a big smack on the sidewalks of Paris, you know, that year, like five people were dead in France, 300 seriously injured, you know? Really hospital hospitalizations, you know? So France went, well, that's stupid. It's also... Private exploitation of public space. They just park on sidewalks. Right. This private company with VC money from somewhere else, they're, and they're clogging it up. And you see the way that they, when they deliver the bikes or redistrib- redist- redistribute them, they, you know, in the middle of a sidewalk, you have to step around them or over them. Not good for elderly citizens or disabled, you know, uh, mobility challenged people, you know. All the benefits go offshore. We're left with the hospital bills, you know. And, yeah, they don't work with bikes, know it's just in ukraine and they have loads in kiev at the moment right oh my god i'm just going this is like so retro this is like you know copenhagen in 2020 right Mm. so that's what's interesting how many cities are trying to desperately limit their use they have a few still in paris 19 was insane man and now i worked a lot there last year a lot less and there's a a parking area for them so you have to deliver it back Mm. like a bike share rack Uh, park it there and it's a a painted off area on the street, and then you have to deliver into a similar area. You can't just leave it leaning outside of a bar or a shop, right? Mm-hmm. Here in Copenhagen, we went. Yeah, this doesn't work. Right? We had a kind of one government that allowed it, and then the next government went. And went that was stupid. Like you know, but you don't what?
1: know until you know. Yeah, you don't exactly. know it's stupid until you try it. One thing I find, if you go over a curb in it, they're 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 brittle, and they're brittle to the person on them. So you go over a curb or go into a pothole, you're going to fall off. On a bicycle, you go over a curb; it bounces back. Yeah, and so it's designed
0: for safety from that standpoint. One of the funniest Instagrams I follow is called "Scooters Behaving Badly." All it is is people sending in videos of people falling on scooters, or or doing something stupid on a scooter, like whatever. It's just really uh, I I find that amusing, (laughs) but uh, um, they're 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 going to go away. I'm right, quite convinced they have been slapped into this new category I hear, micro-mobility, mm. which is all of these gadgets, the mono wheels, right. the skateboards that have a battery on it. And, ah, no, not a fan. They don't belong on the bike lanes. Go to a park, you know. <laughs> yeah,
1: somewhere else. So let's change subject a little bit. I want to talk about infrastructure and the cost of— I don't, want, I don't want to mash two or three things together. So if I think 10 years ahead, and I think of the cost of infrastructure of taking a road in America, some, mostly just America— mm-hmm. And having separated bike lanes, I don't think it's that expensive to do. It's annoying for car drivers to change their behavior pattern. And then I'm going to mash that up with restaurants that have now taken over parking spaces because the world has changed. So with COVID, restaurants are moving into the street, cars are less, parking is going to be harder, bike
0: lanes are there. How do those things work together? But can you mash all those things together a little bit? Two cool things happened, I think, in urbanism. Uh, one is a lot of cities put in temporary bike lanes. Some cities also widened sidewalks so people could socially distance. And a lot of people started riding bikes in big cities like uh, like Paris and New York and whatnot, right? So they made it easier with temporary bike lanes. The other thing is, yeah, outdoor serving is amazing. You know, we did this in 2006. We legislated here in Copenhagen that it was really inexpensive to uh, to rent the sidewalk in front of your restaurant, bar, cafe, whatever, and streamline the process. And we just like reinvented street life, even though we were already really good at it. You know what I mean? Right. Um, so that's what, that's the real positive. I think, uh, I know that a lot of cities are in North America are, are taking out their temporary bike lanes or have done already, but outdoor serving, I think is going to be the one universal legacy of uh, the pandemic, right? The weirdest places on the planet allowed people to take two parking spots and put out some tables. And it worked. New York, when they started. Right. People, nobody's going to sit outside in New York and, you know, in February. Oh, they did, though. And and the shops and the, the, the companies made money, which, you know, after the pandemic was great.
1: So what I'm trying to think about is change overall. I want to think about post-COVID change that did happen. Some things were indeed accelerated. we keep talking about that. And I want to come back before we finish to advice for American cities with how we can get to these places? How do you get from 2% to 6% or 6% to 10%? And and how do we get the will, either politically or the challenges of different cities to accomplish those things, since you can
0: consult and talk? Yeah. When I think about this, which I do every single day for (laughs) one and a half decades, I mean, for me, it's simple, you know, because I've seen how simple it is. I've made it simple in other cities. You know, we did this designed the bicycle infrastructure in this random Russian city. You know, they called us and said, "We want to be the Copenhagen of Russia." I'm going, "Really? Nobody calls from Russia ever, right?" And yeah, we just built the m- most amazing infrastructure and well, they built it, we designed it, and uh they went from nobody on bikes to like 8% in only 5 years, you know. Um so I know that that copy paste that I go on and on about is possible. What the challenges in your country are are engineering standards that are carved in stone, unmovable. The engineers who protect them, you know, and fail to to see what else can be done. But yeah, you know, there are bike lanes in Detroit now. You know that, Mike, you know, I was involved in uh, in the cities that that. pretty awesome that we don't maybe think about long beach california in la they're pretty good Uh, so it's not just a and like i mentioned before minneapolis out of the blue you know the best bicycle city in north america is montreal and it has been for for like basically 40 years because they built bike lanes in the 80s and went oh that worked okay they built them for spandex riding and then they realized that people were using it for transport and they said okay so they started building out the network The current mayor, she is expanding that network now, right? Um, So they're they're the really Montreal, and that's a cold-ass city in the the winter as well, right? So there's nothing stopping, really. Maybe the lack of political will. Visionary politicians, they don't grow on trees anywhere in the world. But uh, the, the cities that have moved quickly... In all manners, oh, yeah. hmm. all matters of urbanism are the ones that they have mayors going. Okay, we get this for God's sakes. Fine, we understand bike lanes. I went on a study trip to Copenhagen and I saw what they did. Fine, um, you know, parks are great. You know, let's, we should have more parks. You know, it's it's activists pushing up, but it's really still depressingly the top down decision making that is required all around the world. It is momentum, man. North America, there is a momentum. It's just not as awesome as I wish it was. What I try to talk about regarding like spending, right? Mm-hmm. It's really important because, like I said, I'm not a cyclist. I just know that the bicycle is an incredibly valuable tool, the most valuable tool in our urban toolboxes for making cities better. It's the Trojan horse. It's the first thing you need to go in, and then everything else, you know, carries on from that. So it's it's an incredibly powerful tool and symbol. Here we have measured the hell out of it in the mid '90s early nineties, I would say Copenhagen was three days away from going bankrupt. We were a very poor country for a very long time where well, there was a bailout from the national government. And they said, okay, we got, we got to keep doing stuff. We got to, still, you know, we're still a city. We got to build infrastructure. And they went, okay, let's go back to the bikes, right? We had been doing it in the eighties and stuff. And they said, let's just go hardcore. That's all the only money we have. So they just started building what you see outside, uh, uh, mm-hmm. you know, the window here and throughout the city. And that Proved to be incredibly cost efficient. So, because they also started measuring it, we've never really done that over the past hundred years. We just built bike lanes, and people use them in great numbers. So, we said, okay, what's the cost benefit here? The return on investment. So now, really, there's no other place on the planet that has done such detailed studies about about this. You know, we have like you know the left wing, right wing, Copenhagen, sorry, left wing, even the right wing politicians at city hall will never vote against bicycle infrastructure because we can just show them documents proving what it's worth. So. Every time I ride a bike, mm-hmm. one kilometer, this guy in these clothes on that heavy bike I have, right. society earns twenty three cents, euro cents, but it's it's, a, it's kind of equal at the moment with the dollar. Fine. Every time somebody drives a car one kilometer, we pay out eighty seven cents. We never see it again. It disappears. It's the worst business model in the history of transportation. Bicycle, bicycles as transport is the best. Like I'm not I'm not an so economist, why? but this you just give makes me sense. some of the argument. What's to justify? What's the twenty-three cents?
1: with eighty-seven cents? We well, may end on this subject, but this is important.
0: Car-wise, um, the eighty-seven—it's like it's public health. Mm-hmm. These people are not healthy. It, literally, you inhale more toxic fumes from traffic sitting inside a car than riding a bike next to it. Right? So, there's the, We're just we're just killing off these people, you know. And in a European society, we should be taking care of everybody, right? Also, time lost in traffic. That's always in a car, basically. The fact that, like asphalt, we have to continuously change it right. because cars ruin asphalt, destroy it 16,000 times faster than bikes do on a on a bike lane with asphalt, right? So it's just a, this never-ending story. It's the infrastructure over and over and oh, over, and over again. again. That's why we have 150% tax on new cars here, because we're trying to get some of that damn money back. So if you don't have that tax, like which you don't in most countries in the world, that 87% easily double or triple. You know, Mm -hmm. I don't even want to know the number. It'll make me throw up in my mouth, right? Like Mm -hmm. really a bad number of tax money going to this. So that's that. The positive one on the bike side is that we've measured with this cost benefit that if you just ride a bike a few kilometers a day around the city, you will live seven years longer on average. That's pretty cool. You will be less ill while you're alive. So you will be calling in sick less. You're stronger on the workforce, right? Mm -hmm. You're not always Get in a cold or whatever, right? Um, you're healthier. We spend less money on you throughout your life, but also later in life because your 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 bones are strong, right? You're mm-hmm. you're healthier, so uh, you're not you know, obese, uh, where we have to have hip replacements and all the different things that you know that that we're paying for with with the obesity uh, epidemic, right? And time lost in traffic that doesn't exist. <laughs> you're always getting there on time. So that is simply such a solid business model that that is why we continue to do this. We will. If you build one kilometer of of protected bike lane here, we know it's paid off within five years because of the reduction of car traffic, more people cycling, the public health benefits of that, you know. And
1: what's the upfront cost to create that one lane versus the upfront, the non-upfront cost of maintaining the four Mm. lanes of traffic that we have anyhow? Studies been done on that? Oh my
0: God. The one, the great, the great one is over a period of about 10 or 11 years from 2007 and, you know, 11 years later, the city of Copenhagen spent $286 million on bicycle infrastructure. We have 17 new bicycle bridges over harbors and canals. You know, you, I tell a politician that, and I meet the mayors all over the world, and I tell them that number. and they go, oh, God, I have to find that money. And I'm going, yeah, but listen, man, we also built a three-kilometer motorway extension just north of the city to you know, get over to this new development. That cost, yeah, $280 million. You know, right. So basically, that's the choice of a new generation, city kids everywhere, do you want three more kilometers of damn motorway or do you want a 10-year investment in a healthy, sustainable, bicycle-friendly city? It's the same amount, make your choice. I think we may end this discussion
1: on that point because that jams at home. There is a last question Mm -hmm. we ask everyone on Leading Voices, but it's always if you were giving a young person advice for their career,
0: real estate because mm-hmm. all of our listeners are real estate professionals or urban planning and design i've yeah. worked with you know, developers also yeah. around the world not just cities and I, I, there's one guy in, in north carolina this is really cool developer who just drank the kool-aid that i served for him uh years ago and we designed a really cool bike friendly neighborhood in in north carolina What's his and name? clay grub okay like, with I the
1: grub Grub companies yeah, yeah, yeah i
0: gotta zoom with him in a couple days about another project um and anyway so uh, there's others like him. There yeah. are developers emerging in uh, here in Europe, uh, in the city across the water in Sweden, Malmo. There's a bicycle house. The entire building is. There's only one parking spot for for a handicap. The rest of it, all the whole building is designed so you take your huge cargo bike with your groceries all the way up and into your apartment, empty it into your fridge, park it outside on the on wow. the balcony. Yeah. Anyway, so this advice is really like you know, be the change. The de- developers, man, in the real estate industry, um, you know, they're More risk averse, obviously. They're also very, very conservative in the whole group of people I have to work with. They're the ones that are like kind of slow to change. But as soon as somebody does it, you know, as soon as that one guy in North Carolina, that one architect in in Malmo, that one place in Paris, just go to the next level and don't have any car parking because the city luckily got rid of minimum parking requirements. A lot of cities are doing that as a trend. Be the first mover, man. You do that in your little market where you work. Mm-hmm. All the other people are going, holy, did somebody actually did it. I read about that at a conference. You know, I, you know, I, I saw sure. a book. Wow. Huh. Be the change. Be the first mover. Fight against the uh, very conservative uh, real estate industry. Uh, and I'm more developers. I'm talking more about developers here, right? Fight against it and literally be the, the change because people want it. You can live in the most car-centric dense uh, lowly po- densely populated neighborhood in america you probably want a nicer street outside your house you know what i mean yeah. i think and in this generation that is rising up now certainly in, in engineering they're all older dudes with beards and they're retiring soon because they were all hired in the in the 50s and 60s and so this whole new generation of of urbanists of urban yep. planners designers and hopefully real estate developers and in that industry we're on the edge of something amazing and totally. we're bringing back life to our city. So be the change. It's interesting.
1: I'm going to push back on one of the points.
0: Developers
1: tend to be paid and they tend to build a vertical building. And in the case of everything we've talked about, it's horizontal infrastructure through a city. So they'll, the developers are conservative because they have to plug into something. Sure, They can make their building bike-friendly,
0: mm-hmm. but if the city isn't bike-friendly, it, they can't make that change. And yet, I find it ironic that I'm not arguing with you. I'm just saying, all over the planet, man, you see these huge billboards for the coming condo buildings. Like, whether you're, I've seen them in Bangkok, in, you know, LA, in European cities, and they have their photoshopped images there. And there's always somebody on a bike. You know, like it's it's like happy people walking or riding a bike around this development. Then you look at the street around that, the, the new building, there's nothing, right? But it's still, that's why I think that all developers and real estate people secretly, you know, secretly want the kind of cities that, that we all we do to deserve, right? We <laughs> yeah. love
1: this. We love <laughs> urban environments.
0: We want people to be happy
1: and smiling. And one of the symbols of that in an urban environment is someone riding a bike somewhere.
0: But then again, be the change, right? Because be change. It is, you know, conservative industries are, you know, influenced by the status quo. So if you've got to be the outlier and to make the move, um, you know, it will pay off. You know, you will be a legend in your own time. Other developers, we got to start this ball uh, rolling now. So, I I mean, I just think that the developers that I know who just went, forget everything that I've been taught, forget what all my colleagues think I'm going to do, I'm going to do it. And they do it, and it's a success. And then everybody copies them. So, be the legend in your own time. Be the change.
1: I love that. I'm going to ask you one last, last question, because this is for you, because you just got back from the Ukraine. And you're doing a fundraise for getting bikes over there. Talk about that. Do an advertisement, please.
0: Bikes for Ukraine. Bikes number four, Ukraine.org is our crowdfunder because I was contacted by uh, some Ukrainian cities saying we are screwed in so many different ways uh, bombed, lots of refugees in cities right. who can't get around. So we need bikes and we don't have enough bikes. Can you get bikes? And I said, yeah, we throw away 400,000 a year. Right. I think I can get some bikes. So I'm, I just, this is, taken over my life over the past two months. So I just delivered the first shipment of 100 used bikes, you know, um, donated by people in Copenhagen and and, from the city to three different cities in Ukraine. And those bikes are in use the next day. In rural areas, the social workers need them to get food and medicine out to the elderly. There are no buses anymore, which there always were. The Russians bombed them or the Ukrainian army took them for troop transport. Gas crisis, uh, gas shortage. Uh, there's literally nowhere to get around. So they are needed so desperately. So i have got the bikes. I need people to help me crowdfund it so I can continue to send the bikes to Ukraine. And I, dude, I was just there, like I said, for two weeks, just got home. And you just rock up with a van with some bikes. They are so grateful. First of oh, all, they thank you for coming to the Ukraine and standing with Ukraine. They're so touched that, that you made the trip. And then these, you know, thank you so much for the bikes. Like it's it's just a tearjerker every single time. So bikes for Ukraine, man. I could literally rock up to Ukraine tomorrow with 100,000 crappy used bikes from Western Europe. And they Let's would be fixed in eight seconds and uh, and, and put to use well, lifelines for these people. It's not just nice to have a bike. It's like this will be a life changer for so many people. So bikesforukraine.com. Donate today. Dot org. Dot org. Dot com. Bikesforukraine.org. Donate today. Thank we have a you. GoFundMe going there so you can put some money on we'll that. We'll do it. Thank you.
1: Thank you for listening into Leading Voices, and I hope that you enjoyed today's episode. I have a request. If you enjoyed the episode and found it to be valuable, please share it with a friend or two. If they're podcast wary, take their smartphone in your hand and subscribe for them and teach them to listen. You'll change their life. Seriously, thanks for listening and keep in touch. You know you can reach me at matt at TerraSearchPartners.com. See you next time.